Judges chapter 8 is our text. We're going through the book of Judges verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 of chapter 8. Getting near the end of our time of looking at Gideon. The topic today, Gideon reveals that the two kings he has defeated and captured are the very men who murdered his brothers. The title of our message, Hello, my name is Gideon. You kill my brother. <laughs> Prepare to die. He could have looked like that. Let's compose ourselves. Take a moment now and collect ourselves. If somebody's going, who's that guy? Then you've never seen a classic movie. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning. I'm always reminded, Lord, of your, um, well, what you tell us in the book of the Revelation when you're writing to the churches, how that you walk in the midst of the churches. And so, Lord, though, I know that you're omnipresent. Uh, there's a special sense of your presence, a manifest sense of it when the church gathers together. And I pray, Lord, that that presence would translate into um, us hearing from you as the Holy Spirit teaches us this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. What must it have been like to look up and see Hannibal marching an army of war elephants over the Pyrenees and the Alps into Italy? Peter Jackson captured that kind of astonishment in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Just when King Theoden of Rohan thought that his horsemen had turned the tide of the battle outside Gondor, horns were blown, and you saw the approach of what the hobbits called Oliphants. They came galloping along with warriors riding atop them, crushing everything beneath them. The expression on Theoden's face captured all the intensity of the moment. Hannibal Barca, not Lecter, is considered one of the greatest military commanders in history. Just want to be clear. <laughs> One strategist pointed out that Hannibal never lost a significant battle during his entire time in Italy. But as the years passed, he found himself steadily further south until he occupied just the toe of the Italian boot, leaving finally in 203 B.C. to preside over his own country's surrender. The writer of the article concluded, Thus ended history's most flagrant example of winning all the battles but losing the war. As we pick up our study in the book of Judges, Gideon and his army of 300 men is pursuing a retreating army of Midianites. He seems to win all the battles and to win the war as the Midianite threat is overcome. Trouble is, the skirmishes with the Midianites are not the only battles that are waged in this account. Fellow Israelites decry and defy Gideon. The weapons they raise against him are not swords and spears. They're more psychological, you might say. Gideon seems to lose those internal battles. Furthermore, when we get to the conclusion of his time judging Israel, we'll see that although he won the war against Midian, he loses the bigger spiritual war. We'll read of him, Gideon made an ephod and set it up in his city Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. As Christians, we are assured that the war is already won. Jesus has defeated our enemies, sin and Satan, and death. We can read about the final days of mankind's rebellion against God. We see it crushed, 
first temporarily at the second coming of Jesus, and then permanently after his 1,000-year reign over the earth. The final incarceration of Satan and the fallen angels, along with all Christ rejectors, is described for us in its awful detail. The work he has begun in us will most certainly be completed. We're each going to be presented faultless and blameless before the throne of God. Our mansions in the golden city, New Jerusalem, will be waiting for us to inhabit for all eternity in perfect fellowship with God and with one another. We are in the odd situation, however, of being able to lose battles even though the war has been won. Do you ever sin? Well, sure you do. And if you say you don't, then you just sin. The Apostle John points out that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus conquered sin at the cross and by his resurrection. We are crucified with Jesus, the Bible says. We are raised from the dead with him, spiritually speaking. But we can still yield to our flesh rather than to God and sin, losing the battle even though the war is won. I want to win the battles, not just content myself that the war has been decided, and I know that you do as well. Let's keep that in mind as we work through our verses. I'll organize my thoughts around two observations. Number one, your battles are winnable. And number two, excuse me for making up a word, but your battles are sinnable. Let's take a, a look, first of all, at verses 1 through 12 at our battles being winnable. Now, Gideon was assured of victory in the war against Midian. A chapter earlier, God promised him and said, By the 300 men, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. His victory was certain. Along the way to victory, Gideon fought a few battles against his own countrymen. Not with swords, but with words. He seems to have won the first one, but it's clear that he lost the others. They were all winnable, spiritually speaking. So let's get into it, beginning in verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded Gideon sharply. God had given and was still giving Gideon a great victory that would extend to all the tribes of Israel. Instead of rejoicing, the men of Ephraim re uh, reprimanded Gideon because they had not been allowed to be prominent in the battle. A little background on the Ephraimites. Jacob, when blessing the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, set Ephraim before Manasseh. Moses, in his last blessing, spoke of the ten thousands of Ephraim and only of the thousands of Manasseh. Joshua, the great hero of Israel, was of the tribe of Ephraim. The tabernacle for a long time was placed in Shiloh, which belonged to the tribe of Ephraim. And for a long period in their history, the numbers of their tribe was so great that it justified their being regarded as a prominent tribe. And so Ephraim was used to being prominent. They were first in line. Now feeling slighted, the men of Ephraim revealed what was truly in their hearts, pride and envy. When you get overlooked in church or don't receive recognition, nobody pats you on the back, you don't get the thank you note, are you bitter that you've been overlooked or treated less honorably than you feel or deserve? I'm not saying those things are, are right. We don't get together as a group of leaders at the church and say, who can we overlook this week? We need to overlook somebody, and, and it's you this week. You know, we, we don't do that. Nobody wants, you know, 
and there's nothing wrong with recognition per se, and so that's not the issue here. The issue here is, I serve the Lord, I do something, and I'm just overlooked. Nobody says anything to me. I, I don't seem to get any recognition. What's your attitude? It may be that the Lord wants to show you what's in your heart, and that's why you were overlooked by mistake. Because it's far more important to your spiritual life that you weed out pride and envy than you receive some temporary honor or recognition. And see, that's the thing so often with the Lord. It's like so I, I fall into some kind of a thinking, some kind of an attitude. And what the Lord wants to do is very gently and lovingly say, you thought you had dealt with all that, didn't you? You think you're a lot more spiritual than you are, but all I have to do is not send you a thank you note and you want to leave the church. That's a hard issue between you and the Lord. And it's a good issue to, to confront so that we can grow in our relationship with the Lord. Now, in our story, Gideon only did what the Lord told him to do. Thus, the Ephraimites were not reprimanding Gideon. They were actually reprimanding God. They were talking to Gideon, but Gideon didn't come up with this plan. God did. They were really angry with God. And when you put it that way, when you step back and say, hey, what am I really saying and who am I really saying it to, it can be a little bit scary. Because when I'm envious towards others, I'm rebuking God, disagreeing with Him. I'm revealing I don't like His plans, and that should worry me. Now, in the midst of the war he was told was won, Gideon found himself in a battle against his own countrymen. Where did this come from? I mean, he's pursuing the Midianites after a great victory in their camp the night before, and all of a sudden the Ephraimites are in a bad mood? It always hurts when the conflict is internal, when it's in-house. It's to be expected seeing we are far from being finished, but it's um, certainly not pleasant. So how would Gideon handle this reprimand? Verse 2, so he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Gideon threw down an illustration from the vineyard comparing his work as a preliminary harvesting and that of the Ephraimites as a more crucial one. He said that Ephraim's accomplishment of killing the two Midianite princes, Oreb and Zeb, exceeded what he and his men had done. Gideon and his men destroyed the rank and file of the enemy, while the Ephraimites had slain two of their leading generals, and doubtless in doing so, they had made a great slaughter of their followers as well. And so the first slaughter commenced by Gideon and his men was like a vintage, and the smiting down of many afterwards by the Ephraimites was a gleaning. And so... Gideon was essentially saying, oh, no, you guys are missing the point. You are preeminent in this. You had the preeminent place of killing Oreb and Zeb. Now, it's undeniable to me that Gideon humbled himself and sought peace rather than to incite more conflict. He used a soft answer to diffuse anger. He allowed the men of Ephraim to claim honor that in one sense didn't belong to them. I have a hard time with this. I, I had a hard time just even seeing this point because I have such a hard time with this because what I want to say to the Ephraimites is take a hike. You guys could have come. You didn't come. Now just take a back seat and watch me, uh, you know, go for it and stuff. I, I mean, I just have that attitude. Don't you? Don't you have that attitude? Maybe it's just me. It's just me. I want to punch him in the face. 
I want to say, hey, can't you see we're pursuing the Midianite army and you guys are worried that you didn't have a preeminent? When, when the story is told, you're not going to be first in line. Now, you can say the men of Ephraim were wrong, that they were in sin, that they needed to be reprimanded. That's all true, but Gideon took the high ground and he looked ahead to the greater victory that God was going to give him. He refused to fight his own countrymen when there was a greater enemy. And that, that's just a kind of a basic Christian principle we ought to buy into. Why fight one another when there is always a greater enemy? I'm not saying we can't have disagreements or don't have disagreements doctrinally and things like that. But these are petty things. It's like going back to our earlier illustration. When you don't get a thank you note. Everybody else got a thank you note. I didn't get a thank you note. Maybe it's lost in the mail. Or maybe we just didn't send you one. We do stupid things. Do you really want to fight about that when there's a lost world? That, that's kind of where we're at. And Gideon said, no, I'm, I'm, hey, you guys want preeminence? Take all the preeminence you want. I just want to continue to pursue God's enemy and destroy God's enemy. I want you to dwell on this attitude in Gideon for just a moment because it's not going to last very long. Gideon is going to face a few more battles just like this, and he's going to lose those. So verse 4, when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Another theme that runs through these verses that we could have taken is that of perseverance. Although victory had been assured, Gideon and his men had to pursue it, and they had to persevere. Sometimes you'll hear the expression, let go and let God. Eh, not really biblical. God's given you the victory, and you persevere in obtaining it and in going after it. Gideon and his men are a good example of that. Absolutely assured of victory, but they aren't assured of victory if they're going to sit at home. They have to get out on the battlefield and pursue the enemy. In a passage that might allude to and apply this account in Judges, the Apostle Paul described this saying, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's a poetic description of spiritual perseverance. You can be exhausted, ready to faint, while simultaneously you're pressing hard after victory spiritually. I'm tired of the Energizer Bunny. If I never see another Energizer Bunny commercial, it'll be too soon. But that's the idea. Except our battery is God the Holy Spirit. We just keep going forward, empowered by the inexhaustible Holy Spirit, trusting in our certain victory. As a Christian, you need to realize there are going to be times when you are physically exhausted serving the Lord. In fact, there ought to be a lot of times like that. Not sometimes, not once in a while. There, there ought to be a lot of times when you're physically exhausted, when you feel mentally drained, when you're hard-pressed on every side, you're feeling persecuted, everything is going against you. And then Paul says, and at the same time, you're marching forward without pause in a victorious cause because you can't exhaust the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you and infills you. Verse 5, then he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Wow. Gideon and his guys did not have these men in custody. And so the men of Succoth lacked faith in God to believe Gideon would prevail as promised. 
They thought the Midianites might mount a last stand and overcome Gideon. And so they wanted to remain neutral until they saw who had won the battle. You can't be Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. Jesus says you're either for him or you're against him. You can't serve God and this world. There's a decision to be made. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Today is the acceptable time for you to think about where you're going to spend eternity. Uh, there's no middle ground. And that's why you shouldn't wait. You should make your decision today and trust Christ who has died for your sins. Miracles are great, but they mostly seem to harden unbelief. Gideon and his 300-man unarmed, unmounted army had routed over 100,000 heavily armed troops who also had a multitude of camels to ride into battle as war machines. But it was unconvincing to the men of Succoth. Gideon had just wiped out by the power of God, not just by his skill, of course. You could see God working in the situation. Wiped out over 100,000 men in the, in the enemy camp. And now the men of Succoth said, well, that was great yesterday, but who knows what's going to happen today? So we're just going to wait, Gideon. We're not going to give you bread because if you lose and it gets back to Zeban Zalmunna that we helped you, they're going to do terrible things to us. If you think Gideon is going to respond with another soft answer to his countrymen, think again. Verse 7. So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmun into my hand, I'm going to tear your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and briars. Wow. Guys, you're going to regret this because I'm going to tear your flesh off. Have a nice day. See you on the flip side. Sure, these guys were wrong, but where was the Gideon of a few moments ago? Being conciliatory and, and you know, big-hearted. Certainly, Gideon's physical exhaustion was a factor, but it was no excuse. We just read from the Apostle Paul how we are to persevere. By the way, this is hard for me to say, that last sentence, because physical exhaustion is my go-to excuse. Anytime I'm off or I say crass things or cross. Oh man, I'm so tired. I'm sorry. And, and now I'm learning that tiredness is not an excuse. I don't know what I'm going to use for an excuse from now on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Being tired. Because you do. You get, you're like exhausted and you're on edge. The other night, it's a silly story, but 2.30 in the morning, the phone rings. It's the alarm company. I said, what's going on? The alarm at the church went off and some neighbor had to call because we weren't even notified something's wrong with the alarm system. Police went down, checked it out, everything's fine. When you're at the panel, can you call us and we'll reset everything? I said, well, let me get this straight. You guys didn't do your job. You don't know what's wrong and I don't have to do anything until I wake up in the morning and go to work. Is that correct? Yeah. You realize it's 2.30 in the morning, don't you? Sure, we thought you'd want to know. When I get to work, I'm going to tear your flesh off. That's kind of what's going on with Gideon. So he's tired, but not that tired. The weaker we are physically, the stronger we can be seen to be spiritually. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so when you're tired, when you're feeling burned out, persecuted, hard-pressed, whatever it is, that's when you need that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I 
don't have to give in to the flesh. I can still walk in the Spirit. In fact, this can be turned into a win for God when people see how wonderful it is that he empowers me. So verse 8, Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. Battle number three along the path to winning of the war. Again, it is fought against Gideon's own countrymen. Verse 9, So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I'm going to tear down your tower. So Gideon's kind of got a theme going here. God's assured me of victory, and when I come back, I'm going to destroy you. This tower might have been a fortress that the people of Penuel could retreat to in order to be kept safe. Gideon continued to be in a foul mood about the lack of support he was receiving. Remember, Gideon was assured of victory. He needed to keep focused on God's provision for it, not the lack of cooperation he was receiving. We're going to see, as the story progresses, he defeats Ziba and Zalmunna. He has a great victory. So it turns out he didn't need the bread of Succoth or Penuel. And by defeating them without their aid, God would have gotten a greater glory. And it would have been to their shame. So he doesn't need to make these threats. We minimize God to the extent we maximize the support that we think we lack. And this is a classic uh, failing, I think, in churches in maximizing the support we feel we need in order to do the work of the ministry. I love that proverb that Chuck Smith coined, where God guides, God provides. Where God guides, he provides. So often we get that backwards and think, oh, where you provide, then God guides. So when we get this money in, uh, this pledge going, then we can do the work of the ministry. And uh, we get it backwards, and we, be, we think like Gideon. And then you get all upset when you don't hit your financial goal rather than just do the work of the ministry. And so verse 10, Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had already fallen. Now these guys had suffered considerable losses, but they still outnumbered Gideon 50 to 1. To see them retreating is to know that they were infected with the terror of the Lord. They knew that it wasn't Gideon and his 300 men. They knew that the Lord was after them and that there was no victory for them. The best they could do is flee and make a last stand, but it was hopeless. Being outnumbered means nothing to us. We are always, as Christians, going to be outnumbered, hard-pressed on every side, surrounded by fierce spiritual foes. It only serves to make our victory in the Lord all the more glorious. Verse 11, Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. seems Gideon took a route they didn't expect, snuck up on them and attacked them again by night as he had the night before. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Samuel, who we believe wrote this book, must have really liked saying Zeba and Zalmunna. <laughs> I, mean, I, I get it. I know, I know that these are who these guys are. He just, you know, over and over again. So victory had been assured by the word of God, and Gideon persevered and experienced the promised victory, though physically exhausted, though oppressed by his own countrymen, etc., etc., he persevered. He won, and he lost battles along the way to that victory, 
We're going to look at the losses in greater detail in a moment, but not before we dwell on the fact that our battles are winnable. In the end, Gideon didn't need supplying from Succoth or from Penuel. As I said, it was to their shame they refused to help. There was no need for Gideon to go all vindictive on their heads. Our battles are all winnable. They demand that we walk in the Spirit, however, denying our flesh. It's not an excuse, but I sometimes think we don't even realize that we're in a battle. The conflict we find ourselves in at work or at home, maybe in church, seems to be with other people who we believe to be in some way wrong or to have wronged us. And maybe they are wrong and they have wronged us. But we need to be reminded that our battles are never against people. They're always against spiritual forces that are at work. The weapons of our warfare are things like humility and peace and kindness and love not revenge and retaliation. And so let's be winners of those battles. Your battles are also sinnable. I know it's not a real word, but it emphasizes that you and I are still able to sin. One commentary I read said this, Jesus sets us free from sin so that we are able to not sin. We may sin, and salvation does not take away the ability to sin. But as we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from all sin The believer does not have to sin. We are able to sin, though we are not to sin. Follow all that? It it sounds kind of funny when you read it that way, but you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, but you can still sin, as you well know. And so that's the idea here. We've won the war, but the battles need to be fought. Gideon puts on a sin exhibition in the aftermath of victory, starting in verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Heres, he caught a young man of the south, uh, excuse me, a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give you bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Now, I know you'd want the gory details, so I did some research on this. When captives were thus put to death, the briars and thorns were laid on their naked bodies, and then some heavy implement of husbandry was drawn over them, crushing them to death. Or, sometimes they were whipped, stroke on stroke, with thorns and prickly plants. The Chaldee version has it, I will mangle your flesh on the thorns and briars. It was an old punishment to tie the naked body in a bundle of thorns and roll it on the ground. So Gideon comes back fresh from victory. He captures a young man of Succoth, and he goes all Jack Bauer on him, does some kind of torture to get the name of the 77 elders, goes back to Succoth and says, Hey, uh, I'd like to see these 77 guys right now. I want to show you Zeba and Zalmunna. Where are your men? They're gathering some thorns and briars. I'm going to tear your flesh off, as I promised. Now, whether Gideon killed these 77 elders or only severely maimed them to where they wished he had killed them, I think we'd all agree this was not from the Lord. This is all Gideon, all flesh. Interesting choice of words, he taught the men of Succoth. Well, he could have taught them something amazing about God's faithfulness and his mercy and his grace. But instead, he chose to school them on revenge and retaliation. It was a stain on what God was doing in Israel. It's remarkable, is it not, that in the midst of great spiritual victory, 
so much flesh can be present. And that's true in our lives as well. Oftentimes after a great spiritual victory, uh, we are vulnerable to the flesh. It's not just true of Gideon. You and I stand in great victory. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Yet we are capable of terrible sins. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. No matter how the men of Penuel had treated Gideon, they did not deserve this. The angel of the Lord had not raised up Gideon to slay Israelites. And he said to Zeban Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the son of my mother. Anyway, it's a bad accent, but it works. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. You ever try and guess what's going on in the movies? In the latest Pirates of the Caribbean movie, one of the characters is trying to find out who her father is. Early in the movie, she, you learn that, and then you're trying to figure out who her father is. I, I, I know who he is. I'll tell you if you'd like to know it. Anyway, in some previous raid on Israel, Zeba and Zalmunna had murdered Gideon's brothers. If this were a movie, the tagline might be, This time, it's personal. Because Gideon reveals, he says, those guys that you killed, do you remember them? Yeah, I remember them. They were my brothers. By the way, the expression, sons of my mother, indicates that Gideon's father had multiple wives. Uh, Just as we're reading through this, the Israelites just doing terribly with God. Now, I'm intrigued by what Gideon said. If we take him at his word, he would have let these guys live, except he felt a duty under the law as the avenger of blood of his family. The Old Testament system of uh, right and wrong, of justice. It was kind of like an Italian vendetta system where if somebody uh, killed someone in your family, then there was in your family an avenger of blood, a Luca Bracci kind of character who would go after that person and that person would have to flee to a sanctuary city and live there for a certain amount. It was a whole system that was built on this kind of a thing. And so Gideon is saying, if it wasn't for God's word, Even though you killed my brothers, I'd let you guys live. He had just killed or severely maimed 77 elders of Israel. He killed all the men of the city of Penuel, all because they had refused to give him bread. But he hesitated to kill the enemies of God, desiring to show them mercy, even though they had murdered his brothers in cold blood. It gets weirder. Verse 20, he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword. He was afraid because he was still a youth. It's not like it was dove hunting or the boy's first deer. Twice the writer emphasized the word youth and indicate this was actually an improper request. He was too young to kill people. Gideon's not exactly father of the year. Is this really the takeaway Gideon wanted for his son? I mean, he is blowing it. Kills Israelites, wants to let enemies go, feels, I got to kill you guys. I don't even want to do it, but I'll have my son, my eight-year-old son, he can do it. Pick up my sword and just kind of dab these. Here's how you do it. This is insane. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, "Uh, excuse me, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Zeba and Zalmunna wanted honorable deaths. 
They wanted to be killed by the conqueror, not hacked to pieces slowly by an eight-year-old. I don't know how old Gideon's son was. I'm just saying eight. So if you fact-check me on that, heresy! But uh, anyway, he's a young boy. Gideon showed honor and respect to these vicious enemies. I'm not saying God would have condoned it, but if you're going to use the thorns of the wilderness against somebody, it would certainly be these guys. I can live with Gideon tearing the flesh off of these guys easier than the men of Succoth and Penuel. Gideon took souvenirs of his kill. They would be relics of his victory, and it's too bad that he would become a relic by not emphasizing the spiritual side of his victory. Think of it this way. When we first met Gideon, he was a timid young man, afraid to be used by God. The Lord came upon him like a garment, we're told, transforming him into what was called a mighty warrior. But Gideon settled into a physical, fleshly dimension of victory, and he's going to end up finishing very poorly. These camel ornaments represent his efforts of snatching defeat out of the victory he was promised. I mean, once you've defeated the Midianites, killed over 100,000 men, you don't need to have bad blood towards the men of Succoth or Penuel. You really don't. I mean, all isn't that secondary? And so Gideon just doesn't get it. You can call them battles or simply your circumstances or situations in your life or your trials and testings. As you walk in the victory that is yours in Jesus, you're going to encounter Ephraimites and people from Succoth and Penuel. Every battle against every foe is winnable because you are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you can be constantly infilled by Him. We've won in the end. Let's win along the way and bring others with us to Jesus. Let's pray.